This podcast is produced by the St. Louis Psychoanalytic Institute, educating professionals and helping people of all ages and circumstances to understand their lives. Visit us at stlpi.org to learn more. So um, I've been thinking about this topic for some time and thinking how to think about psychoanalytic concepts and ideas and have them uh, be applied and also distilled at a level which makes them useful for our work and everyday contemporary life. And this is how I arrived at this topic, to give you some context. Let's see here. What is a normal child? In the article, What is a Normal Child?, Winnicott is clear and thoughtful as he conveys that the crucial barometer for a normal child exists in another simple and sophisticated question. This question is, what is the child's capacity to play alone and with others? For if trauma is to be psychologically overwhelmed, play is to be an expression of an untraumatized and thriving mind. That's actually my son in a tree. I t he was like, Dad, put me in your... I was like, all right, I'll, I'll find a spot. He might have a different opinion later. Normal child, but right now that's what I'm going with. I will tell him you all agree. So, I would like to start this talk by defining some concepts, speaking about different kinds of trauma, some thoughts about individualistic and collective culture, I will then propose a model which is empathic to cultural needs of traumatized children and families. Finally, I'll share an experience early in my work with one particular child and family. A few definitions. You know, we should maintain the lens of culture along with Winnicott's question of the child's capacity to play as we go through this lecture together. I also want to keep in mind an additional question. Where is the trauma located? Is it only in the child's mind, or does it extend beyond the family or community? So it makes sense to start with the challenge of defining the word culture itself. The most usable definition requires an integration of several aspects crucial to what we mean by culture. In this spirit, I found Joshua Rothman's article in the 2014 New Yorker to be helpful. And here he says, it goes without saying that culture is a confusing word this year or any other year. Webster Dictionary offers six definitions for it. The problem is that culture is more than the sum of its definitions. Raymond Williams writes that culture has three divergent meanings. There's culture as a process of individual enrichment as when we say that someone is cultured. There is culture as a group's particular way of life, as when we talk about French culture or company culture. And culture as an activity pursued by means of museums, concerts, books, and movies. Each time we use the word culture, we incline toward one or another of its aspects, towards the culture that's taken in through osmosis or the culture that's learned at museums toward the culture that makes you a better person 
or the culture that just inducts you into a group. For this paper, I'm applying the word culture as a group's particular way of life for descriptive purposes. Now let's turn to the word childhood. I will use the word childhood in its broadest sense to include infancy, toddlerhood, and childhood proper. I realize this is a wide scope. In this fashion, I'll say a few remarks that childhood is a remarkable time of physical, cognitive, and psychological growth, primarily expressed in the, in the child's body. This is in keeping with Freud's view that the first ego is the body ego. He really understood the mind-body connection from the very start. Most of us here work with kids affected by trauma, and we see how trauma is expressed through the child's body, regardless whether or not the, the trauma was done to the actual child's physical body. The younger the child, the less verbal they are, as their symbolic capacities are still developing. Children require play, education, social connection, healthy attachments, and safety from violence and trauma within their respective culture. And you know, the following is from UNICEF. It's just the beginning of the quote there in the middle column. But this is from UNICEF. Despite intellectual debates about the definition of childhood and cultural differences about what to expect of children, there has always been a substantial degree of shared understanding that childhood implies a separated and safe space. Now let's define trauma. Trauma are experiences that overwhelm the child's capacity to cope and function in the world. Trauma disrupts the child's inner experience, the way in which they feel psychologically organized. Trauma can also extend itself to disrupting the world around them from the nuclear family situation to an entire community, depending on the nature and impact of the trauma itself. Whether it is individual or collective trauma, it is always tragic. However, collective trauma presents an additional challenge for the child to recover from. So how does this disruption in the child's mind express itself you know, it's just some common symptoms that you will see across the various levels and types of trauma that we will go over tonight in more detail. From birth to about age five, you usually see sleep and eating disruptions, withdrawals, anxiety, separation anxiety, regression to earlier states of mind, aggression and impulsivity. From about age six to 11, you tend to see nightmares, aggression, difficulty with concentration, school avoidance. From about 12 through adolescence, you tend to see isolation, school failure, self-destructiveness, self-injury, depression, anxiety, and substance abuse. Essentially, across all ages, you see some form of anxiety, terror, and at times, complete affective shutdown, what some would call dissociation. Now to speak briefly about levels of trauma. There are basically two levels of trauma which have subsets of types. The first is the acute level. These are immediate, usually one-time experiences in the world where a child or someone around them immediately experiences, an, uh, an, uh, experiences a threat of injury or death and it creates terror and hopelessness. Examples would be typically in community violence. Now the chronic level of trauma, this type involves repeated experiences of trauma leading to mistrust, shame, and guilt. And examples of this tend to occur in sexual and 
physical abuse typically. So there are many specific types, and there's so many that it's beyond the scope of this evening, but here are a few that we'll cover. I'll talk a little bit about community violence, such as gangs, police brutality, school shootings. And this can exist either at the acute or chronic level. Typically, it tends to be acute. So take gang violence for a minute. For context, there are over 30,000 gangs in the US. Here in St. Louis, that number is about 240. It seems widely accepted that there are many complex factors that lead to gangs. In particular, though, the sense of familial connection in reaction to previous losses. This is a story, this is a narrative you get as you work with more and more of these uh, people in gangs, typically adolescents. The children we work with affected by gang violence are going to be younger siblings or children of gang members, which creates a chronic traumatic situation because of the potential for identifying and joining the gang themselves down the road. Essentially, it creates a transgenerational pattern. And so speaking of an issue that has tragically become front and center, police brutality and police shootings has, as we've all seen, reached chronic levels, epidemic levels, really. And part of it is the frequency that it's occurring. Part of it is we live in a time where it's being recorded, which I think is really changing the, uh, how we experience it and, and, and how we know about it. So this year alone, 2016, so far, there's been uh, about 785 uh, shootings resulting in death by police. That number actually as of today is 788, I learned. And this is across race, ethnic, and gender lines. Obviously, these are mothers, fathers, siblings of the very children who show up at our schools, hospitals, clinics, and so forth. School shootings, there's been over 500 school shootings and killings in the US, uh, on, in US schools and, and campuses. The first one being in 1764, which I was surprised to find. It was a schoolmaster and 10 children who were killed in Pennsylvania. This is typically an acute trauma with long-standing effects. Of course, the, tragically, schools like Sandy Hook come to mind. So think of the child that comes to us from a world of community violence and the resulting losses, the direct or indirect threat of their own lives. This is the kid, the child, who's going to be frightened, distractible, aggressive, withdrawn, hyper-attuned to the slightest changes in the physical and in the emotional environment. So, you know, often we think about the physical environment, our classrooms, our offices, the waiting area, the child comes in, you know that they've been affected by trauma, they're symptomatic, or they're not, and they're attuned to the slightest movement or change. They show up the next day, hey, where's that toy or drawing I just had on your desk, or the following week, whatever frequency you see people at. Or in your school classroom, their cubby or their hole, something slightly changes. It, it just doesn't upset or derail them. It completely shuts them down and overwhelms them. This is the kind of child I'm thinking and talking about. What we don't tend to think about is the subtle changes in the emotional environment, that these children are extremely attuned to that as well. And of course, they would be, given their history. Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's fascinating. It's not just kids uh, from trauma, but if we sort of flip the coin, I was at a, a parent-teacher conference recently talking to my son's teacher. And she said to me, you know, I have a group of kids in my classroom. These are second graders. And when those three or four are 
seeming disorganized, a little bit off affectively or in terms of their concentration, I know it's not the class or them. I know it's me. I know it's something emotional in me that I have to adjust. I call that group my tuning fork. I was pleased that my son was part of the tuning fork. But that's, that's the other side of it. We don't think about the emotional shifts that kids react to. So, and you know, I should note, too, that if a child is replaying scenes of violence from their community, typically they are creatively attempting to master and integrate the trauma. Now, this is something that the child freely chooses to do and engages in. It is not something that's ever orchestrated by an adult. It is freely chosen. You know, and just as a, a true transitional object that Winnicott talks about is chosen by the child, not the adult. Now to speak a little bit about war, terrorism, and refugees. Now this can be at the acute or chronic level. You know, we know all too well that trauma of war has been with us from the beginning. And yet, in relation to war, terrorism has erupted exponentially. In the U.S., terrorist bombings have happened since the late 60s, but really it was 9-11 that created a particular loss of innocence around terrorism and, and the U.S. relationship with it in the world compared to other parts, given the level of mass destruction and loss of life. This, as it's intended to do, creates a feeling of terror and an attempt to destroy the very foundation of safety at its deepest levels. Now, refugees have a particular, uh, refugees have a unique challenge given typically the long history of direct and indirect war exposure, followed by loss of family, community, country, and with that, the loss of a total way of life or culture. The loss is broad and deep as refugees lose the literal world which has structured their reality and their psychological life. An example of this would be the lost boys or and girls of Sudan, which I'll talk a little more uh, later about. And if we think about this more recently, of course, who can forget the image of the young boy from Aleppo, only five years old, and he's become the unfortunate poster child for, a ch uh, poster child for children of war. When we think of a child that emerges from terrorism and war, we tend to see a child who's shaken at the very core of their minds and sense of self. The deepest foundation of what was assumed to be solid and safe has fallen apart. Yet the trauma or disruption is not only in their internal experience, in their mind. The disruption is also in the child and family's cultural way of life. A way of life that functions to hold and sustain a child in a meaningful world. So when we see a child and family with this history, we should be thoughtful to consider where the, where the trauma lies, where the disruption lies. Then we can think about how to intervene in a way that is more effective and supports the child's capacity to work through traumatic symptoms and get them back on the developmental track. To borrow from Kohut for a little bit here, how do we find ways to repair the self and culture fragmentation towards a renewed cohesion? Let's turn to physical and sexual abuse briefly. Physical and sexual abuse cuts across social class, economic, and race-ethnic lines. Psychoanalyst Elizabeth Young Bruhl was outspoken on the issue of abuse. She coined the word childism to encapsulate how we harm children and justify it 
assuming that they are subservient and must submit. Elizabeth Young Brule stated that each and every community and culture needs to assess how it supports or inhibits the safe and meaningful development of life. So children, uh, let me see here. Uh, children uh, between the ages of four and seven and 12 and 15 are at the greatest risk for physical abuse. This, this uh, child or adolescent is one of the most challenging to identify in our classrooms, in our clinics, and in our particular work settings, unless they have visible injuries that are not explained away as a child being clumsy. However, these are very frightened children, always assuming they are in trouble, and at times who are physically aggressive with peers. To turn to sexual abuse, it's, uh, to define it, uh, it's in any interaction where the child, where, sorry, where the adult uses the child for sexual stimulation through physical and non-physical contact, or non-physical contact, such as voyeurism or self-exposure. International studies, for the most part, show that about 25%, a fourth of all adults report experiencing physical abuse as children. In that, one in five women and one in 13 men report experiencing childhood sexual abuse. It's a lot. The sexually abused child will, will appear fearful, jumpy, depressed, and unable to concentrate. The slightest reminder of the abuse through visual sound, typically touch cues, will trigger this child. At times, you may see the child acting out sexual, the sexual abuse on peers in some form. You'll see anger, low self-esteem, eating disorders, self-injury, suicide. That list is on and on and on. It is easy to categorically diagnose descriptive. It is easy to categorically diagnose descriptively than it is to evaluate more deeply, and find more complicated tragic reasons behind a kid's acting out. While you have to think about the traumatic disruption in the abused child's sense of self, it also coincides with a disruption in the parent-child relationship and in the entire family. Think of the trauma as a major collapse in the child's basic sense of safety and trust. We have to tend to all these levels. Many abused children end up repeating these patterns in later adult relationships, as we all know. I am reminded here of the psychoanalytic models that go into detail on issues of identification, internalization, and repetition. And there's plenty of literature there uh, to read about that would uh, so emphasize or highlight any further interest you have in really understanding the dynamics of this. Now, many of the types of trauma we've covered so far usually lead to loss of one or both parents. And this loss brings its own challenges for the family and remaining family members. Uh, in Chicago, for many decades, there was the Chicago uh, Parent Loss Study Group, a group of analysts there. Oh, and they, they, they uh, studied and looked at treatments over many decades of patients who had early parent loss. One of the things they learned was that typically the child would, in certain ways, remain psychologically stuck at the age of the parent loss, the original parent loss. Over time, the study group came to understand that the adult client who suffered the early parent loss would relate to the therapist as the previously lost parent. These clients will make use of the clinician in ways that were incomplete from the previous loss. They look to you to fill in what was once missed. Now, and, and it's unconscious to them, so obviously. They don't just show up and say, hey, be my mom and dad. <laughs> it just, it, 
it gets evoked in them by their connection with you. And who you are to them, not just who you are in your professional role, but who you are as a person that will get communicated to them. It's that part of who you are as a person that the child and later the adult will organize that feeling around. So it'll be specific to you. So naturally, this will re-engage a developmental process of mourning. There's a lot to be said about an approach which respects the patient's own process in unconscious ways and respects their own timeline of grieving. You know, we used to have these sort of steps of grief and these lock steps of grief. Wonderful models that give you an idea of where people are at, but grief obviously is not a linear process. It's much more geometric. And this uh, respect of one's own timeline, one's own way, is another way, another aspect of this approach, which I think extends itself to thinking about the various cultures that we work with. Uh, the uh, psychoanalyst in Chicago, Ben Garber, uh, using data from the Bar Harris Children's Grief Center in Chicago, where they see many, many children who've had a parent loss or both parents' loss, uh, has a wonderful paper. I think it's in 2008. Yes, it is. And he has several things that he uh, was able to gather from all that data and research, as well as his own clinical work. And it's that children mourn at their own pace in their own way. Again, it's not a linear process. That the capacity for the child to mourn depends on their age, their cognitive and emotional development. So children, in fact, do mourn, even if they're limited to, in terms of where they're at developmentally. Garber also makes the point that the loss of a parent is like missing an actual piece or a part of oneself. It's like I miss my arm, my hand. Literally, it, it feels that, uh, that, that literal and that intense. He conveys how mourning this depth of a loss will go on throughout life, well into adulthood, in a back and forth, progressive, regressive way. Each time the child and eventual adult each time the child grows into an eventual adult, over time, you'll have to mourn further and re rework the original loss. And this is even more intense and challenging for those with early parent loss. Sort of the earlier, the more intense and challenging it can be. Now, I have to say something about living in modern times and digital times, partly out of my own self-interest with having a child growing in this world, uh, and partly Anywhere you go, phones and screens are there. I've got them as well. <laughs> I'm not above it. So I, I should mention that there's a, a very informative documentary currently out, if you haven't seen it yet, called Screenagers. Wonderful film. And it's uh, done by this uh, Dr. Rustin uh, from New York, I believe, or the East Coast, who is a physician with her own children, or pre-adolescents, wanting phones and screens of their own. And she had a concern about you know, what's really the effects on young minds. It used to be that we were concerned with the content of video games, movies, other digital formats, and what messages they were portraying. It's moved, and, and not that that's not important, it's crucial. However, as the film illuminates as well, there's a shift from the content to a, 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 a process concern in terms of the sensory experience of constant flashing lights, sounds, and the addictive quality of it. So this is kind of funny in a way, but also a serious point. There's a study in the UK, and six in, ten, six in 10 parents were worried that children had too much screen time. Same study, 
Seven in ten children worried their parents had too much screen time. The kids are more concerned about their parents than the other way around. And I don't think this will be a surprise, but the average child is uh, on screens more time than they are in school. Now, children's brains, as we know, are developing well into their 20s. And there are studies that obviously show that more time on screens creates less of an attention span, as well as other negative cognitive effects. Some of these studies implicate that fewer nerve cells in learning and memory systems of the brain are able to develop and they become stagnant. And even further, young children perform worse on cognitive tasks in relationship to more screen time. So, and so time spent on screens, we now know, releases dopamine to our reward centers at a time when children, especially adolescents, are struggling with impulse control. It's like the worst possible time, right? And so MRI brain scans show similarities in people's brains on screen time and drug addiction. It's, it's really a, a, a serious and in some ways frightening matter. This is ultimately a reminder for the essential need to replace screen time with human time in a sustained and uninterrupted space so that the object of connection and referencing is us. Otherwise, the modern digital world, world will serve this function and leave the child with a distorted view of what it means to connect and be connected in a humanly emotional way. I want to speak a little bit about some of the philosophy having to do with trauma, culture, and psychology. There's a wonderful book by Patrick Bracken which offers a model for thinking about the integration of these three. Bracken served as a psychiatrist in Uganda as part of an NGO, non-governmental organization, connected to Amnesty International, where he treated victims of torture. In his frustration of applying Western psychiatry to patients, he realized he was working from a far too individualistic model. In his book, he presents the idea that all of us function in the world, whatever our cultural context, because we have a sense of, in his words, quote unquote, an underlying coherence. In other words, this underlying coherence provides meaning through an expectable organizing way of establishing patterns and these get folded deeply into ourselves and our communities. To a great extent, this occurs unconsciously. Another way to put it is that it happens in such a subtle and deep way that we do not even think about it. And the healthiest situation, children take it for granted, and they should. So if we think about this underlying coherence, which provides a sense of meaning, Bracken states that trauma removes the meaningful removes this very meaningfulness from the world. This underlying coherence is now, there's a void of it, a withdrawal of it. Bracken also compares this underlying coherence to another concept by someone named Kirby Farrell, who has a concept of the magic circle of everyday life. This magic circle supports the capacity to make the world intelligible in symbolic and creative ways. Uh, for Farrell, the idea, which is similar to underlying coherence, it's that um, if you think of a child entering the world, and if you think of a child who's, let's, they're, they're connected to their gut level feeling and their gut level of engaging the world. They haven't uh, been too, uh, I guess, socialized, let's say, or, or to, for lack of better terms. That child has a wonder for the world. 
and sees the world in the most creative ways. And the more the child preserves that quality as they grow, the more creative they seem to the rest of us. They, they have just a different way of viewing the world. They're still connected to that wonder for the world. That has to do with this, this uh, uh, magic circle of everyday life that Kirby Farrell is talking about. It's a particular time in life. And I think soon you'll see the overlap with psychoanalysis. So this disruption of underlying coherence or break in the magic circle of everyday life is traumatic to the child's mind. It breaks apart the sense of self and the sense of continuity in the world. Only from this underlying coherence and magic circle or Winnicott's holding environment do children go on to create. One way of thinking of trauma is to look at the child's capacity to make meaning and the extent to which this child's capacity for making meaning has now been lost or temporarily lost. This capacity in the child's mind is what collapses. And at times, the collapse includes the child's cultural world. Now, it seems most cultures in the world and subcultures within them fall on a continuum when it comes to how they are organized. The continuum ranges from individualistic to collective modes of functioning. Individualistic, as the name implies, it's about the individual, self-reliance, independence, success, achievement. These are the key factors. You want to stand out, you know, get that trophy, get that first place prize sort of, uh, sort of life or world. Whereas collective cultures are about the greater good of the whole, privileging family and community needs over individual ones, it's less competitive and typically more collaborative in nature. It's also about fitting in. You don't want to stand out, part of the fold. Now, each of them have assets and liabilities. They're both in their own ways blessings and a curse, depending how it gets played out in terms of a child dealing with trauma. And, you know, an example of this continuum can be found, uh, Patricia Foxen, an anthropologist, uh, has a fascinating book where she writes and talks about human rights, memory, and trauma, and how these are culturally relevant terms, and they may be even unhelpful with certain cultures. Foxen states that human rights, as a concept, is an individualistic model, that it privileges individual memory. And she gives the example of the Guatemalan War, where the Mayans have a complex uh, system of memory and of narrative. It does not follow the typical logic of one cohesive narrative that we're used to in typical stories. So now that we have the model of individualistic to collective continuum, we as educators, clinicians, and other, others working with children, we have to think about what we represent to them in relation to their culture. That is how they're positioning us in their minds whether it's something from outside their culture or something from within their cultural relevance. And we have to take time to get to know what that truly is. Only then can we know how we're being experienced and what the central issue it is we have to deal with. To paint a picture, if a child and family locates real or imagined qualities about us that resonates for them in a familiar cultural way, we're in a good position given that the child and family have already made us safe and they're allowing to use us from a familiar cultural context. On the other hand, if the child and family does not locate in us a culturally familiar aspect of their choosing, 
even if we actually share the same cultural background closely, our task is to focus on how to facilitate the safe connection first and foremost. And uh, the uh, case example at the end will illuminate some of that. Another way to put this is to ask, am I being experienced as someone safe or am I being experienced as someone to be feared and avoided? Typically, we're on one or the other side of that. It could be somewhere in between. Now, Bracken's underlying coherence is not individual, but social, collective, and seamless. Traumatic disruption, in this case, is not just individual, it's collective, too. So returning to an example from war in southern Sudan, where mass killings, including the loss of cattle, traumatically affected an entire culture, given that cattle were central to that culture. They were currency, they were used to settle disputes, the cattle's gone. Families dislocated to areas where they don't have the skills for those areas or those urban cities. Now you have prostitution, additional loss of life, ultimately a loss of identity and culture, and there's no written history from within that culture to, to hold on to in any concrete way. It's all gone. So when some of these families end up in our schools, neighborhoods, how do we even begin to imagine how to connect, assist, and possibly form new ways of life that are not forced upon towards functioning in a new reality that is almost incomprehensible for them. One way we can do it is by first valid validating the monumental task that these children have and families. It's similar to something Winnicott said about the validation of the deeper trauma. You know, many times as we're learning, it's not the original trauma that necessarily determines recovery or repair, to use those words briefly. It's really the lack of the validation of the trauma, that there was no witness to it or no one to say, yes, that happened. That validation is much more impactful on what can, how that child can, can begin to even integrate and the family begin to integrate and work through uh, a traumatic life and traumatic experiences. Now to talk about resiliency for, for a minute, uh, I had the chance to uh, talk to Ricardo Ainsley from University of Texas where he's an analyst there and he's done extensive studies of, uh, of the, the mass killings and violence that the drug cartel were, particularly in Juarez, but the border towns. And I asked him, I said, you know, um, so I heard his talk. I said, you know, what keeps these families going? What keeps these children going? And he had these images from the neighborhoods there in Juarez, Mexico. And he said, well, resiliency. And I was like, okay, but tell me, well, what do you mean, resiliency? And he said, well, you know, I don't know how to put it, and it's something I'm trying to study more. He's like, but what I did feel when I was there was that the children and the families, they kept going. They found a way to maintain their typical cultural traditions, their plaza, the plaza, placita festivals, uh, spiritual and religious uh, celebrations. They found a way to keep them going. But the other thing was that a lot of the children and neighborhoods and families there began to collectively organize and look out for each other whenever violence was erupting. So they developed a system of communication where people could be safe, especially the children. Now, now I would like to take another look at what is a normal child. Again, Winnicott is clear and thoughtful as he conveys that the crucial barometer for a normal child exists in another question. The question is, 
What is the child's capacity to play alone and with others? To what extent this can be culturally applied is a question to keep in mind. For the child's culture will dictate how, when, and who the child plays with. Yet so sophisticated in its simplicity, it's a handy question to keep in mind when we are formulating our own assessments from whatever our particular work setting is. You see, I think there's something in Winnicott's work that offers us a way of thinking about a child's culture, family, and community in ways that are creative and applicable, especially with trauma. Just as Winnicott conveyed the mother-infant unit in that there's no baby without the mother and no mother without the baby, so it is with culture. There is no child without culture and no culture without the child. It is here where the level of trauma exists in its gaping disruption of the child's mind and the child's cultural way of life. I find it to be our responsibility to make the interpretation of understanding these deep levels of trauma in order to facilitate culturally-based responses that are effective. Winnicott conceptualizes a holding environment, a good enough mother, as a metaphor for baby and mother, therapist and client, teacher and student, and I would like to add child and culture. The holding environment is provided in the day-to-day -day care of the infant by the caregiver through expectable, reliable experiences. And these are added up as good experiences, and they're weighed against the bad experiences, the ones that don't feel so good. This physical holding of the baby eventually leads to psychological holding. Eventually, it becomes the infant's first idea of a parent or a mother. Now, culture as holding environment provides expectable, reliable experiences that mediate good and bad experiences for the child and their community. This cultural holding leads to the child's first idea of affiliation, identity, and connection. So while Winnicott spoke in detail about the mother-infant relationship, he took into account society in such words as how, the, how important it was for, and these are Winnicott's words, how important it was for the continuation of reliable holding in terms of the ever-widening circle of family and school and social life. So, I mean, he, he was really thinking about it. And in, in fact, in terms of Winnicott, you know, he had these, uh, um, so he was a, for, for some of us, he was a pediatrician for many years, saw tons of mothers and babies, and trained as an analyst in England. And he also had a, I'm gonna call them podcasts, I'm so used to the world now, radio snippet shows. And it was about mothers and babies and families. And he gave these talks and broke them down in the simplest form. He really cared about educating the world and the community about how do we raise healthy, reasonable, adapted children. And you know, he hardly ever, if ever, I think, mentioned the word love. Really. But he and I'm that's a whole nother argument discussion panel at one point. But he he one of the things he commented on is that the the people who are most impactful and responsible and have a, uh, have a greater responsibility and have a greater impact in this world are not the world leaders, not the people who are, are uh, our presidents, or as, you know, given what we're going through now, <laughs> very questionable, right? 
but it's not the leaders of the people who set policy and so forth. They're important people, important leaders, for sure. It's parents. It's the people raising children. That is the deepest, most significant contribution that one makes to a healthy world. And Winnicott was very pointed and straightforward about this. So thinking about each child and family we engage and how their culture of origin function to hold and facilitate their psychological and real world experience. This holding environment is what provides the basic sense of safety and what we can expect from the world in predictable and reliable ways. This is in many ways taken for granted as it should be, as I said earlier. Our culture as holding keeps us individually and collectively organized. As we engage children and families from various backgrounds and cultures, we need to assess that we need to assess how that respective culture function to engage, create, connect, and make meaning for the child and family's experience. By knowing this, we can assess not only where the trauma lies, such as the child's individual mind or entire family and communities, but how the culture itself has been disrupted, which gives the essence to identity and a way of life for the traumatized child. Here is where culture is holding environment collapses in traumatic ways. I realize this may be difficult to imagine how to begin to apply, apply such a mode of assessment. So think of it more as a mode of listening, understanding, and engagement with the child and family and their culture. As you can see, this kind of model, as you can see, this is a kind of model that is neither manualized nor what would be typically seen as evidence-based. There is evidence for sure. It is that the evidence comes from within the child and family's cultural space, which seems to be the evidence of most relevance to the child in the first place. It is a way to come as close and respectfully as we can to the child's cultural way of life through empathy, as Kohut would say, to vicariously introspect. Jonathan Sklar, in his book, Landscapes of the Dark, points out that Winnicott's holding environment is free of judgments, the most open, not knowing approach available to us. This provides a way to be aware of and not project our own professional anxieties, expectations, and roles onto the child and family. One thing that happens in a lot of families who are minorities or recent immigrant or refugees they tend to adopt what we offer out of compliance, which may be, appear helpful on the surface. So you go along thinking, great, they're participating in the program, I can sort of check these boxes off. Yet, there's always still a need of what's missed to knowing from within, which provides a different kind of data that is not observable, observable from the outside. So returning to Josh, Joshua Rothman's essay on culture, he summarizes the word culture, his essay at the end in these words, and it's worth repeating here. That culture may be pulling itself apart from the inside, but it represents in its way a wish. The wish is that a group of people might discover together a good way of life, that their good way of life might express itself in their habits, institutions, and activities, and that those in turn might help them flourish in their own ways. I want to come back to this particular quote. If trauma, if trauma is to be overwhelmed, then play 
is the expression of an untraumatized and thriving child. I believe that applies across culture in its own particular way. That's, that's uh, uh, one, if, if you take anything away from what I've talked about so far tonight, please take that away. That one's creative capacity in the world, that says a lot about where they're at in terms of their own mental state and in terms of their connection with their community, culture, and with you. Thank you. <laughs>